One Week Season. going on inner circle fam jm to win here it is tuesday evening in rainy oregon and i am super excited to be with you guys this week this week as you might have seen from the tweet that i posted a little bit ago we are going to be focused on something we talk about relatively often on the site which is the fact that the the nfl evolves over time and that dictates that our optimal strategy for DFS needs to evolve over time with the involvement of the NFL. The way that teams are developing players, deploying players, running their offenses deeply impacts the way that the optimal pricing structure and approach for DFS works. So we're four weeks into the season. It is a really good point to settle down and get a sense of what different teams are doing across the board and a really cool opportunity for us to do this because in the past, the training type content that we sort of funneled through me, one of the things we were focused on was making it evergreen. So we were less interested in sort of in the moment stuff like this. Um, But with inner circle, this gives us a cool opportunity to say, yeah, some weeks we'll focus more big picture, evergreen type stuff that you can always apply. But it also gives a cool opportunity for us to take time throughout the season and say, here's what's going on right now in DFS. And here's how we can start adjusting more quickly than our opposition is adjusting in order to build optimal rosters. So let's go down memory lane a little bit. Some of you may remember Actually, some of you, most of you have probably been in DFS since 2015 because that was the last time there was a big advertising push. One of the things that I think is very interesting and it's worth being aware of, and actually Roto Maven and I were talking about this earlier today on our on our weekly call, is that while some of the old 2015 players are starting to kind of filter out, right? Like they've done DFS. They loved it. It's not for them anymore. They moved on to something else. Well, DraftKings and FanDuel, you may have noticed, are putting lots of commercials on television right now for DFS. That's not because DFS is their big moneymaker, but it's because sportsbooks are going to be their big moneymaker. And they can't advertise sportsbooks on Thursday Night Football, on Sunday Night Football, on Red Zone Channel, on DirecTV, right? But they can advertise DFS. And so they're advertising DFS basically the same way that a casino uses poker, right? Like, sure, the casino takes a little bit of a rake in the poker games, but it's a game of skill and there's going to be people who make money over time, people who lose money over time. And the rake is just kind of the same regardless. Whereas once they get those people into the casino and they get them betting on games, they get them playing the slots where they have like a 15% edge, they get them playing roulette because it seems so simple and people don't realize that the casino has a 6% edge on roulette. In other words, every $100 you spend over time, you will lose $6. That's where the casino makes their money. And so we're seeing the same thing with DFS where they're trying to bring new people into DFS because that will get them into 
the sports betting with FanDuel, with DraftKings. And I actually had a call from my nephew the other day who's 21 or 22, doesn't follow sports. And he he asked me if he could get on a call with me to talk to me about DFS because he has started playing DFS this year. And I think that what we're going to see is a lot of newer players coming in that we can basically apply our edge and our understanding of how to play DFS and uh, gain an edge over these newer players who are coming in. Obviously, some of them will show up on OWS, we'll learn about DFS, we'll get better uh, and be able to compete at that high level. But uh, we are seeing new players coming in really for the first time in the last few years because advertising dollars are being poured into that. Something to keep in mind, something to be aware of in the back of your mind. But as we talk about the evolution of DFS, most of you have been in DFS since 2015, 2016, somewhere around that point. And so you may recall that in 2015, the sharpest move on DraftKings was to pay down at running back. And the reason was because the higher priced running backs were the Adrian Peterson types, the guys who only caught one or two or three passes per game, occasionally had a big blow up game. And the rest of the time, you know, we're getting their 17 points, their 18 points, their 20 points that you could get for 4,600, for 5,200, for 5,400, whatever it might be. And then you could pay up for the wide receivers who were actually seeing consistent 10 target games on a PPR scoring site. So that was basically the template for winning back then was let's start with a cheaper running back. Let's as best as we can not pay over 6K at running back. Let's always look for those opportunities. And then we free up extra salary to pay in these other spots. Uh, Rob Gronkowski was typically the highest owned tight end would usually be priced around 7K, 7,500. But a lot of times he was getting 15 points, 14 points, 17 points, occasionally 22 points. And so again, paying down at tight end and getting 10, 12 points, there was a lot of value in that. And you freed up so much salary for wide receiver and quarterback. During that same time, we sort of had the Blake Bortles season where it was like, you could pay down, you could pay 5K for a quarterback and get you 22 to 25 points. Most weeks, you could find the right guy in that range. And Condia made that a, a very popular roster construction approach. If any of you remember Condia, he was uh, pre-Max Dallary. He was, uh, Max Dallary got kind of eaten up by Osimo. He was pre-Osimo. But Condia was the big name for a little while. And people would actually study his Thursday night rosters back when full rosters were revealed as soon as games locked on FanDuel to get a sense of what Condia was doing to have a sense of how they wanted to play the Sunday slate. And Condia was very much in that pay down at quarterback category. And the thinking was that quarterback scoring is pretty bunched up. So you can spend 7K for the guy who's likelier to get 25 points. But if you can find the right guy at 5K who can get you 20 to 25 points, you're gaining such an edge. So basically, there were all these places where it made lots of sense to pay down and you freed up all this extra salary for the elite wide receivers, the heavy workload wide receivers. So that started changing in 2016 when Le'Veon Bell was getting all this pass catching work, was regularly seeing seven, eight targets a game in addition to 17 to 20 carries. Uh, David Johnson got his big workloads where he was seeing nine, 10 targets a game and maybe not a ton of carries, but in PPR scoring, there was so much value there. And and as these guys started getting their price tags bumped up above 8K, which we really hadn't seen before outside of the rare Adrian Peterson type guys, 
they started getting their price tags bumped up above 8K and Levitan coined the term team jam them in. And it was like, find a way to play these two guys because they're getting so much multidimensional work. So we've talked about this in the past that other teams started drafting and developing players who could have that same type of skill set. So whether it was Alvin Kamara or Christian McCaffrey, or there's a bunch of other examples of players who were brought in to have this more multidimensional skill set out of the backfield. And so it became much more normal to pay up at running back. And it became a thing of basically, if you can get 30 points at the running back position, like let's forget about salary multipliers. Let's just think about raw points. Who cares what you're paying for 30, 35, 38 points? Who cares if you pay 10.5K for McCaffrey and he doesn't get you 4X? If he gets you 35 points, that's hard to find elsewhere on the slate. And so we take those certain 35 points and then figure out where to go from there. That kind of brings us to now. And I want to work through a few numbers that might be a little bit eye-opening for you. So let's go back to 2019, Christian McCaffrey's last full season, and where it sort of got drilled into our heads as DFS players, as a DFS community, that it's super sharp to pay up for running back. 2019, Christian McCaffrey played 16 games. Take a moment to try to guess how many of those games he scored 29 or more DraftKings points in out of 16 games. Out of 16 games, Christian McCaffrey scored 29 plus points 11 times in 16 games. So log that number away because we're about to get into some really interesting things. So Christian McCaffrey scored 29 plus points 11 times in one season, and he topped 40 points three times. The other guys who were kind of in this pay-up range, Dalvin Cook, Alvin Kamara, Derrick Henry. Let's take a look at Dalvin Cook. So what I used to say about Dalvin Cook was, yeah, like he's once his price got up above 8K, it was like, yeah, he's a good play, but he's never really going to get you that had to have it score. He was very consistently getting 25 to 30 points. If he missed, he'd get you around 17 to 20, but he never has had this massive pass catching role that boosts him up to those 40 to 50 point games. Now, last year, he had a couple of those games, but remember, Christian McCaffrey had 11 games of 29 plus points in 2019 alone. How many games has Dalvin Cook had of 29 plus points in 2019 and 2020 combined? 10 games. So across two seasons, Dalvin Cook has had fewer 29 plus point games than Christian McCaffrey had in that one 2019 season. In those two seasons, he's had two games of 40-plus points. They both came last year. So fewer 40-plus point games than McCaffrey had in that one season. Dalvin Cook is kind of in a different category for me because we have this concentrated Vikings offense where there's less guesswork because you can say somebody on this offense is probably going to get 30 points, and there's so much value in 30 points that I've always kind of kept Dalvin Cook in the separate category to say, yeah, he's rarely going to get those blow up 40 to 50 point games, but he's going to get you 30 consistently enough that you can say, look, one of these Vikings guys, right? You have a one in three shot and really Thielen's typically going to be the least likely of the groups. You could even say a 40% shot on Dalvin, a 40% shot on Jefferson and a 20% shot on Thielen somewhere in that range. Uh, So Dalvin's kind of been in in a different category for me, but you can actually 
say he's closer to this Derrick Henry and Alvin Kamara category than he is to the Christian McCaffrey category. And I call this Alvin Kamara and Derrick Henry category the afraid to not play them plays. The guys who maybe the numbers don't tell you it's the sharpest play, but you remember those blow up games they've had. And so you're scared to not play them. So Christian McCaffrey had 11 games of 29 plus points in 2019 alone. That's why we've gotten, why it's become normalized to pay up for these exorbitant price tags at running back. 11 games in 2019 alone. 2019 and 2020, how many games does Kamara have of 29 plus points? He has six. Six games between 2019 and 2020, and actually these first four games of 2021. Six games, and yet people willingly and regularly pay this 8K price tag at high ownership. We never saw anybody go above 8K until this, or at least above like 81, 8,200, until this Le'Veon Bell, David Johnson era, where it was like, hey, these guys are catching six, seven, eight, nine passes a game and not just dump offs, right? Like wide receiver level usage where they're being put in the slot, they're running wheel routes, they're getting passes in the end zone. That's a very different thing than what we're seeing with, let's say, 2021 Alvin Kamara, who uh, Mike Johnson had a a great take last week in the NFL Edge write-up where it was basically like, how is Kamara going to get to one of these eight target games when the Saints don't want to lean on Jameis's arm to win games? So Kamara, I believe it's he's had three 20-plus carry games this year, and it's like three of the four he's had in his career. I might be slightly off on that, but it's something like that. So he's getting all this usage on the ground. That's great. But when we're paying this price tag, what are we paying for? Well, we're paying for this tradition of running backs getting 25 to 30 touches with six plus targets. How often is Kamara going to smash his price tag? How often is he going to go well over 30 points? Well, right now, six times in the last three seat, two and a half seasons, two and a quarter seasons. Uh, and now he's in this new offense that's passing less often two games of 40 plus points. So again, that afraid to not play them thing. He had that 57 point or 59 point game, uh, last week of last season. Right. So then you get scared. Well, I've got to play Camara because he can have one of these huge games, but far more often than not, He's scoring 17, he's scoring 16, he's scoring 21, he's scoring 22. And you can get those scores from cheaper running backs. Lastly, we'll go to Derrick Henry, 2019 and 2020. Now we know that Derrick Henry is very much in this afraid to not play them category. People play Derrick Henry because they're afraid to miss out on that 40 or 50 point blow up game. He has three games of 40 plus points across the last two seasons. Now again, McCaffrey had three games in 2019 alone. Eric Henry's not in that category. Christian McCaffrey had 11 games in 2019 of 29 plus points. Eric Henry has eight games across the last two seasons. So Kamara and Henry have combined for 14 such games in 2019 and 2020, whereas Christian McCaffrey did it 11 times in 2019 alone. And so we have gotten used to this idea from the David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell era, from Christian McCaffrey emerging in this huge role. We've gotten used to this idea that we pay up at running back. But what is that doing to the rest of our roster? I've said this time and again over the years, but one of the sharpest things I ever heard about DFS was, head. Chop- I think it was Head Chopper, it might have been Notorious, but one of them said, 
Think of everything you put on your roster, not in terms of just what it adds to your roster, but also what it takes away. So as soon as you're spending 8K in salary on a guy, you know, sure, we can look at the raw points and say, hey, he's probably going to get me 17 to 22 no matter what. And he can get me 30. Yes, but he's going to get you 30 less often than the field is expecting. The ownership is going to be higher and you're blocking yourself off from that salary flexibility in other spots. Now, let's take this over to how the NFL itself is evolving. And I was curious heading into the season what we would see with a 17-game season. Because really, 17 games and 16 games isn't that different. But players already feel like 16 games is an enormous workload week in and week out with just one bye week in there, taking these constant hits throughout the week and then on Sundays. 17 games, and then you think about playoffs, it seemed likely that we would have some teams managing workloads a little bit more. So I thought this stat was very interesting. I came across this today on Roto World. It said that David Montgomery has accounted for 63% of the Bears' rushing attempts. Fifth highest. That's stunning when you think about it. That's the fifth highest in the NFL. How many running backs do you think have averaged 20 carries? Derrick Henry and Joe Mixon. How many players have averaged 17 plus carries per game? There are seven. Henry, Mixon, then Kamara, Chubb, who doesn't get targets. Kamara, who doesn't really get too many targets right now. Uh, David Montgomery, who doesn't get too many targets. Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook. So we're seeing all of these backfields that are approaching things differently than what we've seen in the past. And yet most of our competition is still approaching the running back position the same way. So before we move on to the next step of this, which is uh, how we how we basically assess running back and how we allocate our salary a little bit differently. I want to go team by team just real quickly to hit on the situations for each of these teams. So I will go relatively quickly so as not to slow things down. And if you want to come back and listen to this after the fact, or if you're not listening to this live, if you want to be able to pause this and jot down any notes, feel free, but I don't want to slow down uh, for that. So use that pause button while you're listening to this back on your podcast player. But the Bills as we're going to go division by division, the Bills have basically a 50-50 workload split on a team that prefers to pass the ball. The Dolphins have a three-way split on a team that prefers to pass the ball. I think uh, that last week, Malcolm Brown led the team in rushing attempts with like eight rushes, and that's been pretty normal for the Dolphins. Uh, the Patriots have a role-driven split. So we're going to have games where Damian Harris has 17 to 22 touches. There are going to be games where Damian Harris, as we've seen the last two weeks, is getting no touches because the Patriots are approaching those games differently. Uh, the Jets have a three-man backfield and are typically in catch-up mode. So we've gone through one division, and we really don't have any running backs that kind of pop out and say these are strong, consistent running back plays. The Chargers very much want to emphasize Austin Eckler in their 
offense. So Austin Eckler is a guy who we can kind of view as one of these workhorse backs, even though they're going to mix in whoever it is, you know, Roundtree or Kelly or Jackson, whoever they feel is their least bad option behind Eckler. And that's one of the keys is the Chargers don't have a great option behind Eckler. So they want to keep him healthy. They want to emphasize him in the pass game. He's not going to get all the work, but he is still a focal point of their offense, which is a good thing to keep in mind. Uh, And he's one of these few guys who actually gets the receptions to go with the rushing attempts. The Broncos, as we know, pretty much a 50-50 split. The Raiders' backfield is kind of a mess right now, but we know that Josh Jacobs has a very one-dimensional role. We know that Peyton Barber, if he's in there, has a one-dimensional role. We know that Kenyon Drake is kind of in the doghouse right now. We'll have to let that one shake out a little bit more. The Chiefs, we know that uh, Daryl Williams is going to take about 40% of the snaps, 40% of the touches away from Clyde Edwards Hilaire. And we know that this offense is going to flow through the passing attack. The Bengals, we have Mixon when he's healthy, is an actual full time back. Uh, the Ravens, their full time back is Lamar Jackson. Whoever is their number, number one back is really going to be their number two. Whoever is their number two back is going to be their number three. And they're not going to get a lot of pass game work. The Browns, I believe Nick Chubb has not topped one target in a game so far this season. And they're very much splitting things between Chubb and Hunt. We'll actually get back to Hunt here in a little bit. Uh, The Steelers are another team that has a full-time back in Najee Harris. They're not running him a lot because they can't run the ball, but he's going to be involved in all areas. And if the Steelers ever do start scoring, which is somewhat unlikely, but if they ever do start scoring in bunches, he will be involved in that. Uh, Derek Henry, we don't, we don't need to spend too much time on. We know that his pass game role truly has grown a little bit. They're actually using him on design pass plays a little bit more often, keeping him on the field for dump offs and whatnot, uh, but still primarily a yardage and touchdown back. Texans, this split backfield, the Colts, we have Jonathan Taylor. We have Naeem Hines last week, Marlon Mack mixed in for 10 carries. Uh, Optimally, we would eventually see Jonathan Taylor be the guy who gets all the touches when the Colts are controlling a game and Naeem Hines when they're behind. But again, that's not bankable right now. And then the Jaguars with Carlos Hyde missing last week, we finally got a full on James Robinson week. We'll have to see this week when Carlos Hyde returns, what that ends up looking like moving forward. As you see, not that many great options at running back from a prioritized running back first standpoint. That's the AFC. NFC, we have the Cowboys are basically splitting work between Zeke and Tony Pollard. Zeke is going to be the 1A back, but he is not going to be a true workhorse. He's not going to have 27 touch games this season because they're happy to mix in Pollard for 10, 12, 14 touches if they're running the ball a bunch. Pollard's also the guy likelier to get the pass game work. Zeke will still get some, uh, but it's a little bit closer to that Browns setup than we would have expected coming into the season. Washington, same way. Antonio Gibson is going to be first two, da- first two downs. J.D. McKissick is going to be third downs and hurry up situations. The Eagles are not running the ball currently. Gainwell has looked better than Miles Sanders. They're really not sure what they're doing with that backfield right now. So we can't be too sure what to do with that backfield right now either. The Giants have Saquon Barkley. He's going to play over 80% of the snaps and get most of the running back touches. Cardinals, Chase Edmonds, James Conner are splitting things. Chase Edmonds is getting kind of the money touches between the 20s, the plays that pick up a bunch of yards. He's getting very rare usage inside the 10, and James Conner is getting those touches. Kyler Murray takes some of those touches. So again, if you take on Chase Edmonds, you're banking on pass-catching work and big plays that turn into touchdowns, fewer paths to a monster game. The Rams, the whole Sony Michelle thing, watching the, the Patriots as I have every year. Um, It never really made sense to me that everyone was concerned that Daryl Henderson would lose a big chunk of his role with Sony Michelle going there. 
Uh, that doesn't seem likely to be the case. So Daryl Henderson, we can kind of pencil him in as like an 80% back, not a ton of pass game work, but he's functioning at a, at a, at a high level of usage in this offense. Seahawks. The reports from beat writers were that we should not expect Alex Collins to take on a larger share of the workload. Alex Collins is in there to spell Chris Carson, even though Alex Collins looked much better than Chris Carson this last week. So again, another fairly messy split. It's been a while since we've seen Chris Carson go over 20 touches. We know that the Seahawks are wanting to protect him and kind of keep him under that 20 touch range. 49ers, we know that they're obviously always going to kind of spread the backfield work around. We'd like to see Elijah Mitchell come back this week and get a better sense of if he can be relied on for a heavier workload, but we don't know in that spot. Packers, Aaron Jones had a couple 20 plus touch games to start the year. That was really encouraging, but we also know that they're not going to let him have these huge touch games throughout the season. Last year, it was primarily he was capped at like 16, 17, 18, 19 touches more often than not. A.J. Dillon's going to mix in. Uh, Bears, David Montgomery is going to be the guy, but he's out right now for the next several weeks. We'll have to see how they use Damian Williams. Vikings, we assume that Dalvin Cook is still the guy, that the lightened workload last week was just about coming back from injury, but we'll have to see. The Lions, DeAndre Swift, and Jamal Williams are going to continue splitting work. They're both going to be involved in the pass game. They're both going to be involved near the near the end zone. They're both going to be involved on the ground. DeAndre Swift is the guy who has the explosive upside, but we have to take on a low floor with him. We know that the Bucks' backfield is difficult to predict. We know that the Panthers are going to belong fully to Christian McCaffrey when he's healthy. We know that the Saints' backfield is going to belong fully to Alvin Kamara uh, to whatever extent they feel comfortable keeping his body at risk. Uh, and we know that the Falcons are going to be splitting between Mike Davis and Cordero Patterson. So when we break it all down, we kind of have about 12 running backs with 20 touch upside who can see five targets. Uh, Joe Mixon, Najee Harris. I'm throwing Derrick Henry in here, even though he's typically not going to get those five targets. He kind of makes up for it with the, the 25 carry games. Jonathan Taylor, Understanding that there's also going to be some really low usage games. James Robinson, barring what they do with Carlos Hyde coming back. Austin Eckler, Saquon Barkley, Aaron Jones, again, with some risk. Dalvin Cook, Christian McCaffrey. And then we have these guys in, well, actually, let me say this first. We talk about this a lot. Where does upside come from in DFS? Upside comes from volume, from big plays, and from touchdowns. Volume, big plays, and touchdowns. And when we're talking about PPR scoring or even half PPR scoring, we can also uh, throw like an addition onto volume to say targets. Well, we've already said that there's only two running backs in the NFL so far this year that have averaged 20 carries per game. So volume is not going to be our main indicator when we're looking at running back. And when we're looking at these cheaper running backs, we start looking at big plays and touchdowns, and then obviously volume coming through the air, which is where we end up with these Kareem Hunts, the DeAndre Swifts. Uh, I put Alvin Kamara in here because he's not technically a 20-touch plus five targets guy right now, but there can be the random game flow scenarios where he'll end up getting five targets, and he's getting top 20 touches most week. Same thing with David Montgomery. But typically, we're used to the we're used to seeing Cordero Patterson at forty five hundred, for example, and saying, "Well, he's not going to get more than twelve or thirteen or fourteen touches." And running back is where we have more certainty. So let me skip this cheap running back. Let me pay up. But what I'm trying to illustrate here is that the certainty of these higher priced running backs is 
thinking in the past. Teams are running their offenses differently. They're spreading the ball between multiple running backs more. And the uh, the, the price tags are set where they are set because of what the DFS community is used to in the past. DraftKings doesn't make their pricing algorithm public, but we know with a fairly high degree of certainty that what they take into account is production, past price, and ownership. Ownership is a big thing. As long as people keep paying up for these high-priced running backs, those prices are going to stay high. And so we can get into this pricing psychology thing where we start saying, well, this guy's priced here, so he's worth this. And we talked last week about the DraftKings pricing is good, but we need to look for places where DraftKings pricing is wrong and where it's staying wrong because of the way that the DFS community is continuing to build, is continuing to view things. And so these running backs who in the past, we would have said, well, that's a little bit risky for the running back position. Well, now we can start saying, yeah, but so is paying 8K for a guy who's topped 30 points six times in the last two years. That's a little bit risky. And so we can start saying like, okay, yeah, let's take on a little bit more risk at running back and take on more certainty at other positions. Let's pay attention to the Kareem Hunts, the guys who are going to get five to seven targets. And let's think about the game flow for this game and say, you know, look, if I pay 4,500 for a wide receiver, I'm not expecting a high floor to go with the high ceiling. I'm just hoping for a high ceiling. If I'm paying 5,500 for a running back, 5,200 for a running back, 5,600 for a running back, let me say, let me bet on ceiling and take on a little bit of a lower floor, recognizing that the floor in these high-priced guys is no longer what it once was in that price range. So Kareem Hunt, DeAndre Swift, Cordero Patterson last week being a good example. Uh, Naheem Hines, if you can find a game flow that sets up really well for him. Uh, James White, before he got injured, guys like that can be really valuable at this point. If we shift our thinking to say, let me take on a little more uncertainty at running backs. And that's not to say that we are just wiping the high-priced running backs off the board. But I want to encourage you to reorient your thinking and reorient the way that you're starting your rosters. So let's tie all that up. How many 30 plus point games have we had from running backs through five through four weeks of the season? How many 30 plus point scores through four weeks of the season? We have had a total of five. That's it. Five times that a running back has gone over 30 points. Derrick Henry got 50.7. Aaron Jones got 41.5. He hasn't cracked 18 points in his other games. Austin Eckler got 32.5. He hasn't topped 23 in his other games. Najee Harris had 31.2. He hasn't cracked 22 points in his other games. And Cordero Patterson had 34.6, and he has not topped 13 touches this year. Now, let's move over to quarterback. There have been five games so far of a running back going for 30 plus points. There have been 16 games of a quarterback going for 30 plus points. Mahomes has done it twice. Josh Allen has done it once. Kyler's done it twice. Lamar's done it once. Brady has done it three times, likely unsustainable. You'll notice a pattern in the types of quarterbacks who are getting these types of scores. Mahomes, Allen, Kyler, Lamar. Next one is Jalen Hurts has done it once. Dak has done it once. Sam Darnold's done it once. 
with two rushing touchdowns. Daniel Jones has done it once. And then the pocket passers alongside of Brady with his three, the pocket passers who have done it are Herbert has done it once, Stafford has done it once, and Goff has done it once. So this reorientation of where we're targeting our points to say, rather than prioritizing spinning up at running back, let's prioritize finding 30 points at the quarterback position because we also have to think about what separates different people's rosters on their way to first place. If everybody has to play a quarterback and I get 17 points and you get 32 points, well, the salary spent matters a lot less than the fact that you have just gained 15 points on me at this one sort of blocked off position. And so quarterback, tight end, these positions, defense too, but we know that defense has a lot more volatility, but these positions where everybody has to play a guy and you can just gain a big positional edge by getting that better score, there's a lot of value in looking there first. So that's not to say that you cut out the cheaper quarterbacks. Last week for me, it was, uh, again, I walked through throughout the weeks the reasons why I really didn't see any of these super high-priced quarterbacks going for just like a blow-up game, a 40-point game. And so I was on Jalen Hurts saying that, look, if I can make the salary work here, I'll get up to Jalen Hurts because I think he has the highest rushing upside on this slate. Uh, If I can't make it work, I will take the savings at Zach Wilson with Jamison Crowder, with Corey Davis, and hope that I get 60-plus points from this block of three players that cost under 15K in salary, and then use that salary wisely in other places. But you have to think about it. If you're paying down at quarterback, you have to think about what you're competing against and what types of scores might come out of that quarterback position. Because if there's a 38-point score and you settle for 22, you are so far behind at that one spot, where sure, they spent a little bit more salary, But how much does that extra flexibility get you when you have to make up that ground at the two running back spots, the three wide receiver spots, and the flex spot, right? Like you've now got six spots that when you spread out that extra salary across six spots, well, probably they can find a way to match whatever you're matching across your six spots. And so those those single positions, quarterback and tight end, where you can gain that edge, there's a lot of value in looking to go there. Also take note that Jared Goff has one of these 30-point games. Take note that Daniel Jones has one of these 30-point games. Daniel Jones has a couple others uh, over 25 points. And so you know it's not just paying up, but if you're paying down, you have to think about what type of ceiling you are targeting. So I want to, and we might go slightly over 45 minutes, but I want to go game by game to show you game by game on this week's slate, this week four slate, the main slate, to show you how I kind of narrowed down my quarterback pool from the front end of the week in terms of just thinking about what type of game environment are we likely to have and what types of big scores could we potentially get from those game environments. Now, one thing that's important here is that you don't create concrete thoughts. And what I mean by that is you go through this through the games one time and you say, okay, yeah, these two teams will probably play this way. And so uh, I don't expect either quarterback to have a big game. You can think through it differently your second time through, your third time through. You can think through it differently after you've read something that Hilo said, after you've read something that Mike said, something that reorient your thoughts a little bit, but just start laying the groundwork of how you're seeing the quarterback position because everything else is going to flow from there. If you're starting at, hey, where can I get maximum upside at quarterback? And then what does that mean for what I'm betting on at wide receiver? Because I'm probably tying that into game environment in some way. And then you think about, hey, is there a positional edge at tight end, right? Do I want to pay up for Kelsey? 
which is kind of the clear way to go? Or do I want to say, hey, maybe Kelsey gets a 20-point game and I can get 15 points from Gusecki. I can get 15 points from Schultz. I can get 20 points from one of these cheaper guys, right? And maybe make up that ground. And those are kind of the two ways to play the tight end position. But it all sort of starts from the passing attacks. It all sort of starts from this quarterback position. So I'm going to go game by game real quickly. And then we'll wrap up a couple notes on wide receiver and then we'll get to questions. So game by game in week five, New England at Houston. My first thought here would be Davis Mills has looked really bad. The Patriots defense is going to have a plan for him. The Patriots are an adaptable offense. It's likely that we see the Patriots control this game and keep the ball on the ground. From that, neither quarterback goes onto my list on this pass through things. We get to Detroit at Minnesota. More than likely, Minnesota is going to leverage the fact that they can win this game on the ground. That's how they like to play offense. And that's going to lead to this game staying close with the Lions playing on the ground because the Lions aren't going to get super aggressive through the air unless they're falling behind and being forced to. And so neither of these quarterbacks would be on my list. I'll also mention that one of the times I went through all these games, I played out the scenario differently and added Goff to the fringes of my list. That time it was like, Minnesota has a really good offense. Detroit has a really bad defense. Minnesota can score 30 plus points even without going pass heavy. And maybe they pass a little bit more than we're expecting. Clint Kubiak has been calling more pass plays than the Vikings have called in the past in neutral situations. And so maybe the Vikings score 30 plus points. The Lions are forced to throw the ball. Now, the Vikings defense has also looked good the last six quarters. They shut down Seattle in the second half of week three. Uh, They looked really good last week against the Browns. Uh, Baker Mayfield helped them out by looking very inaccurate as well. But we've seen this Vikings defense from like a communication standpoint take a while to gel several times over the last few years. So Jared Goff, there's a lot of question marks. Maybe the game flow doesn't go his way. Maybe the Vikings defense is going to keep playing better, but he's cheap. He actually has 25 to 30 point upside. He's on the fringe of the list. New Orleans at Washington. We know that the Saints are not going to try to win passing the ball. We know that the Saints still have a good defense, even though they've been sort of up and down. So at this point, going through the game by game, Heineke and Jameis Winston are not guys who are popping out for my list. Miami at Tampa. Well, we know that Jacoby Brissett has thrown like 150 passes for like 300 yards, right? Like he can't throw downfield. The Bucks are either going to suffocate Miami by letting them throw these dink and dunk passes and then forcing them to punt, or they'll tighten up in the short areas and try to make Jacoby beat them downfield. The Dolphins are easier to attack on the ground than through the air. So it's unlikely that the way this game will play out, it's unlikely that Tampa will be forced to go pass heavy based on game flow. And so you would be betting on Tampa just deciding to attack Miami heavily through the air. So in this spot, I would say neither of these quarterbacks are going on my list right now. And I'll make a note that, hey, Leonard Fournette's actually kind of interesting in this spot as one of those cheaper running backs. One of those guys you can say, hey, let me bet on a cheaper guy who could get me to 25 plus points since I'm really not that likely to get 25 plus points from the expensive guys. Next game is the Packers at the Bengals. We know that the Bengals have been very run-based on offense this year, whereas in the past, everything was built off of the pass. This year, everything has been built off of the run. We know that Aaron Rodgers is rarely going to throw more than 30, 32, 33 pass attempts. They're going to play slow. This game is probably going to be run into the pass for both teams. Uh, So either quarterback can put up big games on efficiency, but it's harder to see one of those 30 to 35 point games coming from these two guys. So again, neither is on my list. 
Then we get to Denver at Pittsburgh. We know that Ben Roethlisberger can't throw the ball downfield. We know Denver has a good defense. We know that Drew Locke is probably going to be full of mistakes on the road against the Pittsburgh defense, which will further incentivize the Steelers to play conservatively. So again, hard to see either of these guys going over 30 points. Neither goes on my list. Next, we have Philadelphia at Carolina. Let's just say Jalen Hurts goes on the list because of his rushing upside. And Sam Darnold can be kind of a fringe guy in that game environment. And then we move on. Tennessee at Jacksonville, we would expect that the Titans are able to control this game on the ground. We would expect that it's not particularly likely that Ryan Tannehill is throwing the ball a ton because we know that that typically comes in shootouts for Tennessee. Trevor Lawrence is interesting against this Tennessee defense, but he's 5,800. And so then you have to say, well, you know, I'm not just thinking about salary multipliers. I'm also thinking about raw score. If I'm taking up this quarterback spot, do I actually think Trevor Lawrence gets to 300 plus yards? That's the scenario or uh, to 30 plus points. That's the scenario I have to bet on if I put him on my roster. So you keep him kind of on the fringes. Chicago at Las Vegas. We know that the Bears are going to run a conservative game plan for as long as they can. We know that the Raiders will stay conservative with their game plan if their opponent is staying conservative. So it's not particularly likely that we get 30 points from either quarterback in this game. Cleveland at the Chargers. We know how well the Chargers defense has been playing. We know how well the Browns defense has been playing. Justin Herbert is always in the conversation for a 30-point game, but going through this list and just saying, hey, who stands out the most, he's not going to pop out at this point. We only have two games left, and we only have a couple quarterbacks who are all kind of on the fringes, which is where we get to San Francisco and Arizona, and we say, well, obviously, Kyler has a high probability of a 30-plus point game put him on the list. And Trey Lance, who, by the way, looked like he had no idea what was going on in that game. Uh, Granted, he had very few reps with the first team heading in. They did not have a game plan built around him, but he looked really bad. And yet he put up 20 points in one half of play. Part of that was a 76-yard touchdown to Debo Samuel, busted coverage. Debo was wide open, nobody within within like 20 yards of him. Lance underthrew him by a mile and Debo was still able to sprint to the end zone. Uh, But also because Lance is so uncomfortable back there and his eyes are coming down so quickly, as soon as the rush gets anywhere near him, his eyes come down and then he remembers, I'm not supposed to do that. Let me look up to find a wide receiver. And then his eyes come down again and then he just runs. Well, it's pretty likely that if he's starting, if Garoppolo is out this week, that we see Trey Lance end up rushing for 60, 70, maybe more yards, just based on the fact that he's skittish back there and is going to pull his eyes down quickly and run. That opens opportunities for these 30-point games. So both of these quarterbacks end up going on the list. And then we have the Giants at the Cowboys. And you could paint this game two different ways. You could paint both of these teams being conservative, keeping things on the ground. Or you could say, look, the Cowboys are explosive. They're probably going to score points regardless of how they attack, which is going to force the Giants to continue to remain aggressive. We know that the Giants are going to primarily work the short areas of the field, but they do layer in deep passing, designed deep passing. That touchdown to John Ross was, I believe it was the first play of the second half this last week, and it was a play designed be a deep shot to John Ross. And it was actually thrown into decently tight coverage. Like Daniel Jones is pulling the trigger on these deep throws and actually looks pretty good making these throws. He's going to run around. uh, He's going to have an opportunity to put up points in this spot against the Cowboys. So both of these guys go on my list. Like I said, Goff was on 
he was actually like the first quarterback on my list. The first time I went through games, the second time I went through games, I didn't even notice him. I looked at my list from the day before and was like, Oh yeah, I added golf yesterday. Uh, let me keep him on the fringes of consideration, but you kind of go through these games and look at them different ways and think about not who can have a good game, not price, but just who can get you those separator type scores especially if we look at the running back position and say, you know what? There's not a high probability of finding a separator type score. From there, you can basically start building around game environments with pass catchers and then also isolating the floating plays, the wide receivers who you would be comfortable putting on a team that has nothing to do with that game environment or with that player. So whether that's like last week for me, those floating plays were Deontay Johnson, uh, Debo Samuel kept popping back into my head. I didn't end up using him. Uh, But those guys who you're like, I'm not necessarily betting on this game environment, but this guy has a pretty, you know, going to be near the top of the league and targets this week more than likely and has a lot of upside on these looks. These are these floating plays that I'll I'll keep in mind. Uh, And then there's the game environment plays that might not be the game you're betting on, but that you can say, let me bet on the fact that there's right. Where does, where does ceiling come from? As we said, ceiling comes from volume, big plays and touchdowns. So as you get to cheaper wide receivers, you're probably not going to get volume. You're not going to get a 10 target guy priced under 5k. There are 18 players, 18 pass catchers so far that have averaged more than eight and a half targets per game. And not all of them are going to stay above that mark. So you can't just say, well, I want 10 targets, right? Like once you get down to these cheaper guys, you're not going to get 10 targets, but you can say big plays and touchdowns. Van Jefferson's a great example of this. Van Jefferson's on the field all the time. Van Jefferson is being priced like a risky play but he's being used in the Rams offense as a guy that we should be considering. So like last week, Van Jefferson at 3,900, you can say, look, I'm not betting on Van Jefferson. I'm betting on this game environment producing points, Van Jefferson being on the field a lot and hope that he's the one that the scoring ends up going through. You could have done the same thing with AJ Green in that same game. Nobody wants to play AJ Green. Well, great. Nobody wants to play him, and everybody's betting on there being points in this game, and he's going to be on the field. He's going to get six or seven targets, and maybe he bombs. I played A.J. Green week one, and he bombed, and he's had two or three really good games since then. Maybe you play him and he bombs, but you're just saying, like, what's least likely to bomb? What's most likely to help me is these guys in these game environments where points are going to be scored, and they're going to be on the field. Uh, And so that's kind of how you would wrap in the pass catcher stuff from that point. So all that to say, we're, we're going to go ahead and um, and stop there. But all of that to say, rethink the way that you're approaching rosters, rethink the running back position, and not to say that you just now say, okay, well, now I don't pay up at running back. But think critically through these things and think about what you're actually paying for and think about what that adds to your roster and also what that takes away from your roster in other spots in terms of the salary spent and the flexibility that that buys you or doesn't buy you uh, and the type of upside that you're targeting. So again, these cheaper running backs, well, now you're not targeting. You you can't say, oh, this guy's not a good play because he's not going to get 20 touches. You're probably not going to get 20 touches from most of these cheaper running backs, but maybe you get seven targets and six or seven carries, the Cordero Patterson workload. Uh, Maybe you get six or seven targets. Maybe you have some big play upside. Maybe you have some touchdown upside. The DeAndre Swift play where maybe you get 
12 points, maybe you get eight points, but maybe you get 30. And you start to have to think a little bit more about that at the running back position because you're finding your certainty and that extra salary spent in other spots on your roster. So uh, that gets our feet under us for some adjustments that we can all kind of take moving forward this year that will get us ahead of the curve as far as how everybody else is still viewing DFS, how everybody else is still approaching their rosters, how everybody else is approaching salary, and how everybody else is seeing the certainty that really isn't there at certain spots, certain salary points uh, on their rosters and in their construction. So we will wrap up the session there and we will move on to the questions, Aaron, if you want to come on in with that. Man, that was so sharp. I loved that segment. Um, I think it's something we need to add uh, when you go game by game like that, and just kind of giving quick thoughts. So let us know uh, what you guys thought about some of that in the chat, if you guys could, if you want to see some more of that. Because I think that was really um, valuable just to kind of hear you run down the list. I think a lot of us do that, but hearing it from you is is pretty valuable. So I liked it. All right. Um, can you hear me okay? Just making sure I'm coming through, Jam. Yes, sir. I got you good. All right. This one is coming from Alex Harbert. How do you know your process is good or how do you know when to change it up and how much research is just too much? We get this question a lot and I feel like I give the same answer all the time, which I'd love to give something new, but realistically, process is the best way to gauge it is the best way to gauge it is what percentage of your rosters are finishing and what percentage of the tournament so if you're consistently over time placing more than five percent of your rosters in the top five percent you can feel good about your process taking a step back though we're working with really small sample sizes in nfl and so if you play even if you play like 20 rosters a weekend if you play it with a single entry mindset, if you play it with a mindset where you're like, um, okay, well, I will go all in on these two or three pieces, or I'll go all in on this game, which is a very sharp way to play it. Not to say that that's the only sharp way. It's all about personality and, and kind of how you see things and what you prefer, but that all or nothing approach to multi-entry, well, you can miss three or four weeks in a row and have 0% of your rosters in the top 5%. And that doesn't mean that your process is bad. So the main thing I would say is, is always look for ways that you can improve, right? Like you're here, you're in inner circle, you're listening to Zandemir and Hilo on Saturdays, you're reading the Oracle to see how these strategy angles are being broken down. You're asking questions, um, study rosters that are finishing at the tops of tournaments and break down what they were doing, what worked, what didn't work, um, what they got lucky on, what might've been a bad approach, but that ended up being successful or what was a good approach and that you can learn from it. Um, but I think that there's this tendency to want to start from scratch to sort of say, Oh, well, this didn't work. Let me start over. Um, so uh, this last week on, on Monday or yeah, on Monday, I think it was Josh Morano was, Hey Josh, uh, I think Josh listens to this. Uh, Josh, who was one of the guys who reads the NFL edge, he was texting me about his, one of his rosters from Sunday. And he asked me if he overstacked it or uh, if he, you know, if it was just variants that it didn't hit. And I said, well, what do you think? Like what, how would you answer this question? Because you have to be able to do that on your own. You have to be able to say, 
okay, well, what did I think heading into the game? So his example was a Matthew Stafford plus Robert Woods plus Cooper Cup plus AJ Green plus Christian Kirk. And so what I said to him was, let's take the salary of Stafford and Woods and Cup. You need them to score 80 plus points just for this to work. So what what is 80 plus points? Don't don't just leave that as some random number, right? Demystify it. So then you can say, well, let's say Stafford throws for 325 yards, four touchdowns, let's say 210 yards and 15 catches and three touchdowns go through these wide receivers. What does that get us? That gets us to about 89 points. So now you're basically saying, okay, I am betting on a scenario in which Stafford throws for at least three touchdowns and all three of them go to these two guys preferably four touchdowns with three of them going to these two guys. If that happens between these two offenses, it's highly likely that Arizona is keeping pace. It's highly likely that multiple pass catchers from Arizona, especially cheaper pass catchers have a shot. And if you say, well, Kyler Murray has averaged 11 and a half rushing yards per game against the Rams. DeAndre Hopkins is going to see a lot of Jalen Ramsey. So if I'm betting that the Rams throw for four touchdown passes and I'm betting that the Cardinals keep pace, well, it's a pretty safe bet that like AJ Green plus Christian Kirk can combine for about 40 points in that scenario, right? Like if you get the first bet right. So understand, well, the first bet was this. Did it happen? No. And what I also said to Josh, that I think is important is we tend to use the term variance to sort of mean unlucky. Variance doesn't just mean you got unlucky. Like you would have gotten fortunate if Matthew Stafford had thrown for four touchdowns, but that's the bet that you were placing. So it's just understanding, hey, here's the bet I was placing and it didn't hit. But is that a reasonable bet? Yes. So you need to be able to kind of look at your rosters critically and judge them yourself to say, what was I betting on? And was it a reasonable bet? So is it is it the likeliest thing to happen that Stafford throws four touchdowns? No, but first place isn't the likeliest thing to happen for anybody's roster. So you, you have to bet on some things that are not the likeliest thing to happen. But if you can say, okay, well, I was making a very clear bet. And here's why I was making this bet and trying to get to first place uh, in this way. And if this one thing had hit, it does make a lot of sense. Well, then you can say, okay, that was good process. And it was, it was variance that it didn't hit. It also would have been variance if it had hit, it would have been variance if you'd gotten four touchdowns from Stafford, if everything had gone right in that spot. And so understanding, yeah, like what you're betting on and understanding what good roster construction looks like is the best way to kind of judge your process in the short term. And a lot of that you should be able to do before kickoff. You should be able to step back and say, okay, what story am I telling with this roster? And does it make sense? And then you can say, if it doesn't hit, it doesn't matter, right? Like I told a good story. I told a story that had a reasonable possibility of hitting and that was going to give me a clear path to first place. And if that story doesn't hit on this week, that's fine. That brings us to the second part of the question, which is too much research. If you start getting to a point where you think like you were gaining a big edge on the field from this like one little piece of research you're finding, you're probably doing too much research. Because realistically, like I always say, go watch the games, right? There's so much chaos in an individual NFL game. There's so much that has to go right for everything to go right for your rosters that if you start thinking like, well, all right, let me let me spend an extra 30 minutes here. Let me drill down into this one stat here. The, the stats 
are great for giving context to everything and helping you kind of see a big picture. But once you start thinking that that's going to be the key that unlocks something, that's when you're spending too much time. Because like as, as Blender often says, you can go look at a projection system and get 90%, 85%, these are my numbers, but I'd say you can get 85% of what you could get from reading the NFL edge and doing, or doing a bunch of research on your own, maybe 80%. So if you, if you feel like you're spending all this extra time looking at all these other stats, and then you're not looking at the GPP ceiling tool, right? Like you could close that gap so much by just saying, okay, let me run through the GPP ceiling tool. Let me see what projections are coming out of here. Oh, here's a guy I never would have thought of as having a high likelihood of a big game. And then you can assess that spot from everything you know and say, okay, yeah, I actually don't think that this is this guy's 80th percentile score. I don't think that this is going to happen 20% of the time in this spot, maybe more like 10% of the time in this spot. Uh, or you see a guy who's projected high and you're like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about this guy. Let me think about this guy. And that can close the gap in some of that time you're spending where you say like, let me supplement. Let me, it's like what I've always talked about with Cubs fan. Not, he doesn't do a lick of research himself, right? He reads the NFL edge to see sort of what the sharp way is to look at each game. He listens to a bunch of podcasts to see where the chalk is likeliest to go. And then he leverages all of that to build rosters that bet on high upside bets that other people aren't thinking of. Um, and so basically recognizing that what this really is, what DFS really is, is a strategy game of you outplaying the field and giving yourself a better path to a first place finish. And so a bunch of extra research probably isn't the key that's going to unlock that better path to the first place finish. It can help you make sharper plays, but so can a lot of other things. And so I would I would always recommend spending more time thinking through the strategy, thinking through what your path to first place is than thinking through like, oh, what extra research can I put in? Because you can outsource a lot of that research just through the NFL edge and through the GPP ceiling tool and have most of what you need. And, you know, maybe you want to then go look at uh, next gen stats and look at route trees and uh, look at average depth of target or look at, you know, some regression analytics and whatnot. But, you know, you're going to have most of the work done for you just from what you're already paying for. And then you can spend your time being creative and thinking about how you can piece together those rosters for those first place finishes. All right. Next question is from carry out Cole. He was traveling this week, so he had some trouble with his lineups didn't have the time and uh, they didn't work out the way he wanted them to. He's uh, traveling again in a couple weeks and with limited time, is it better to go 150 MME and spread my exposure more or is it better to go with an SC uh, single entry three max and focus on making a couple really good rosters? I know you used to always say if you had more time, you would play less lineups. But if you have less time, do you play more lineups at lower stakes? Um, having not used an optimizer myself, if I had less time, I certainly wouldn't try to build 150 lineups. If you have less time and you try to build 150 lineups by hand, you're going to be rushing them and there's not going to be the creativity that should go into them or the thought that should go into them. So if you're familiar with an optimizer and you can sort of run through the steps that Xandamir talks about and, and kind of get your rules down right, how you want to piece things together, that's a way to do things. Most of my best 
weekends. A, a majority, like a literal majority of my best weekends have been while traveling. And the way that I handle that is I keep DFS in my mind throughout the week. So I'm kind of always turning over the slate in my head, piecing together roster combinations, different ways that I could do things. And that actually ends up buying me a little bit more time because I'm less absorbed in it. I'm a little bit separated from it, which allows me to think a little bit more creatively about it. So uh, that's also one way to look at it is it could actually buy you more time because your brain is freed up if you're traveling, if it's not for work, uh, or if you're not working while while actually in the process of traveling. Uh, you can kind of have that time to just kick back and think about the slate and think about different game environments and, and roster construction approaches. So uh, yeah, for me personally, I would probably end up focusing on fewer rosters and um, and and I would also think about like, what is your roster construction week look like? Like for me, I do most of my roster construction, like official roster construction on Saturday night. So if I still had time to think through things throughout the week and then was able to actually still sit down on Saturday night and build my rosters, I would, I would play things the same way. But if it were something like a holiday on Saturday or I had something going on Saturday night with family, then I would you know, say, okay, well, I'll try to get things pieced together earlier in the week and then get down to fewer rosters. Um, so not really a clear answer there because every brain is different and the way that each person should approach that is different, but that's kind of how I would approach it myself. All right. Next question is from Fonz. What is Dalvin Cook being 3% owned in single entry tournaments coming off of injury? Tell you about the overall mindset of how people play DFS tournaments. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we know that people are scared to pull the trigger on somebody coming back from injury, especially a high profile player. But we also saw Dalvin Cook. I mean, he he appeared to re-injure himself, but it seemed like the Vikings plan was to mix in Alexander Madison. Um, also, that game had a high total. But neither team had a particularly high implied team total. Uh, the Vikings were at home, but they were underdogs. So, I mean, they were also like he didn't pop out as just like the top play on the slate. It would have made more sense for him to be 10% owned. And so therefore in single entries, yeah, I guess single entries ownership skews even more. So then you get down to like six or 7% owned. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it just reminds us that it reminds us that the DFS community as a whole has a John Fox approach. If you remember watching John Fox call football games, John Fox was very much in the business of not losing. And that was how he would call games. And so if he was behind by 10 points in the fourth quarter and got a fourth and six on his side of the field, but there's really not enough time to punt the ball, get the ball back and score twice. He would still punt the ball instead of going for that on that fourth and six. In other words, to kind of make the final score look less bad. Um, and so there were a lot of decisions that John Fox would make throughout a game that was like, oh, you're more interested in not losing than you are in winning. You don't want to make a mistake that costs you a win. And so because of that, you kind of go into a shell and make mistakes that don't allow you to win. Um, and so I think that we, as long as we keep that in mind about the DFS community, that they are as a whole a bit John Foxish, because there's also the element like ownership gets higher on plays in single entry 
not because that play is so good, but because people think, and I'm sure each of you has had this thought because I've had this thought, is I have to play this guy. He's going to be 20% owned. Obviously, that's the wrong thinking. That's when you think, oh, I can't play this guy. Everybody's on him, right? Like, unless he's just such a better play than others, your thought should be, oh, well, then I'm not playing this guy. But the DFS community as a whole tends to think, and, and you know, you get up to the game changer, you get up to a $1,500 buy-in single entry. The guy who's 20% owned in the Millie is going to be like 40, 45% owned in that tournament because people think, well, I can't not play this guy. Everybody's going to be on him. And so we just need to always keep in mind that, that that mindset is sort of what drives things. So guys who are high owned are always going to be higher owned than they should be because people start piling onto that play thinking, well, I don't want to miss out in case this guy hits. Same thing. If a guy's coming back from injury, it's like, well, single entry, I'm only putting in one roster. And if this guy gets hurt again, or if his workload is lower because he's coming back from injury, well, now I've sunk my whole roster with this one play. So there's just not as much risk embracement as there should be. And I think that's the big takeaway. It's something we already know, but every time that we can be reminded of that and sort of loop that into our own play, it's good for us. So yeah, um, it's an interesting question. And that's kind of the, the overall way that I would apply that. All right, this is from SKD. Uh, this is in regards to single entry. So I had six lineups last week centered around the Chiefs and Eagles. Three had Kelsey, two had Hill, one had both. Uh, I mixed them into three max contests and did well. My problem was my single entry contest. I decided to go with one lineup in all my single entry contests in order to maximize my ROI to its fullest potential in case I hit big. Is that the right process for single entry or should I have treated my single entry contest as one big multi-entry and played some of my other rosters. Um, the single entry had Kelsey, not Hill. Yeah, I mean, I would guess if the single entry had had Hill, we probably wouldn't have gotten this question, right? Because then it it hits and it ends up working out. Uh, the The reality is that there, to me, there is no, there's no right or wrong there. You can. If you had had Hill on that single entry roster and you'd had this big game from him and now all of your single entry rosters are finishing the money and, and having a shot at first place, you would have felt great about that approach. And if you take Kelsey, then you're like, God, well, I, I built all these other great rosters. And now I flushed all my single entry play with Kelsey. And that's kind of the thing is, is it's just a mindset thing to me. It's just a mindset thing is like, if you're fine with the all or nothing, then you also get the benefit of the all. If you're not fine with the all or nothing, then kind of mix and match things in those single entries. And the way I would mix and match things is I would say, okay, here are the single entries that are thousand entries and they'll get this roster. Here are the single entries that are 5,000 entries and they'll get this roster. Here are the single entries that are 10,000 entries and they get this roster, right? Like kind of say like cat, like in categories, this roster goes into these types of single entries. This, this roster goes into these types and this roster goes into these types. But yeah, it's, it's just a, um, it's a thing of, of how you pre prefer to approach it and what your mindset is coming out of it. So if you can look back and say, let's say that you'd gone with the Hill roster on some of them and the Kelsey roster on some of them. Uh, and then you 
had these big these big rosters with the Hill one, right? Would would it have been like, oh god, I should have just gone Hill rosters all in on single entry, or would you say, well, I'm glad that I mixed and matched things because I got some shots at first place? Um, because the reverse of that is that since you had the wrong roster and you're like, well, I should have just mixed and matched things, right? And so you got to kind of find what keeps you in the best headspace coming out to where if you had a winning weekend, you wouldn't have been like, oh, I could have been, I could have won so much more with an all-in approach. But instead, you're like, okay, well, I'm glad that this is the way I work things. Um, and then if you're coming out of the losing weekend saying, well, this was the wrong approach, then just, yeah, change it up for your approach. Me, I've always been fine with the all-in type of play. And so I just, you know, I come out of those weekends just knowing that that was my mindset going in. I know that that's the risk and I know what the reward is when it hits as well. But yeah, it's just a risk reward and, and personal psychology thing as far as what will not mess up your play moving forward in my mind. All right, this is from Solo. Four weeks into the season, what are some narratives the field is clinging to that you believe are exploitable going forward? We, I think I, I basically covered this in, you know, the first 50 minutes of tonight's lesson. And so I'll leave it at that. And we also had this question in the Oracle last week. But, um, but yeah, any place where you can find, you know, the Bengals were one of the past heaviest situation neutral offenses in the league last year. And now they're one of the run heaviest, the Cowboys. Oh, the Cowboys defense is so bad. And the Cowboys passed the ball a bunch. Well, we have a one week sample size of that being the case against a really good Buccaneers offense and a Buccaneers defense that you can't run against anyway. And we have three weeks of that not being the case of the Cowboys looking like an average to maybe slightly above average defense and of their offense being built off of the run. So yeah, any place where we can find places where the offseason narrative is inaccurate or the other big thing to watch for is weeks one and two of the season, right? Like Darren Waller had 19 targets week one. Everyone's expecting that again. Darren Waller had, this is off the top of my head, so I could have it wrong, but Darren Waller had one or two games last year of 15 plus targets. I think he had a a game of exactly 19 targets last year. Um, That happens. That doesn't mean that that's his permanent role. So when something like that happens in week one, everyone keeps chasing that for quite a while. Uh, there has to be the ability to separate like, oh, Cooper Cup, this is for real. He is the alpha on this offense. He's being used all over the field. DJ Moore, this is for real. Like I didn't draft DJ Moore in best ball at all because the Panthers offense last year wasn't focused on passing when they got close to the end zone. So DJ Moore getting eight, nine, 10 targets a game but scoring two or three touchdowns throughout the season wasn't going to help me that much. Well, now it's like, oh, okay, this is for real. This DJ Moore role change. So finding those places where the first week of the season narrative is actually true, right? Like it holds. And even if DJ Moore, Cup, whatever, they have a down game or two, it's pretty clear that these are their roles in this offense. But then also looking for those places like the Waller thing where everybody keeps chasing the same game again, without recognizing that, hey, we have a pattern of this has happened in the past. Waller's going to have these 14 target, 15 target, 19 target games, but typically he's still going to be in this five, six, seven, eight target range uh, and being able to adjust in those spots accordingly as well. All right. This is from G Negro. This is back in the day or Jam, back in the day in the origins of one week season, you did a chat pod mentioning building practice rosters for multiple contests 
to build in upside elements, safe elements, and tying them together to build one roster. This is something I still do to this day. Is this still a viable strategy, or should I move to playing more lineups? I'm mainly a single-entry guy and play one lineup across single-entry contests. Yeah, I love I love building a lot of rosters. And I think that's one of the things that has drained me a little bit from running the site is, and it's really like by week five or six, kind of have all of like the site running stuff off of my plate. But by this point in the season, I've had like three and a half months of really hard nonstop work to get everything ready for the season, launch the season, get things underway, and then get everything off my plate. And so at this point in the season, I'm building eight, 10, 12 rosters throughout the week. Uh, Whereas in the past, I would have had I would have gone, you know, into Friday night or Saturday to build my single entry lineup and I would have already had 70 or 80 rosters built. I think that there's so much value to that. The one negative element in building a bunch of rosters is it can give you sort of a template that you just keep reusing. So if you build a roster and then you import that roster and change a couple things for your next roster. And then you import that original roster again and change a couple things for your next roster and then import that roster again and change a couple things for your next roster. You kind of keep reinforcing your thinking. So that's the one trap that can happen there. But if you stay out of that trap and you say, okay, well now I'm going to force myself to build around this game that I don't want to build around and I don't plan to use players from it. But now you've started out from a different point your salary comes together a little bit differently. You start looking at different players. You start seeing different things differently. And same way that I went game by game and just talked about the passing attacks there, I do that at every position, right? So if I'm going through the mid 5K wide receivers, I'm going to be asking about, okay, like, what is this guy's role? What can happen in this game? What's his upside? Like, what sort of feeling do I have about this player? Like, how, where does this player fit overall? Uh, and yeah, the what I say is the more you build, the more flexible you make the slate for yourself. So optimally, if you're building 50, 60 plus rosters throughout the week, that one roster that you have is going to be mostly right. Like it's going to be mostly sharp and you might have an either or that you pick the wrong side of. And that's the difference between like a big weekend and a bad weekend. But you're going to have like a really good sense of what the sharpest plays are on the slate just by building a bunch of rosters and making the slate really flexible for yourself. And by building a bunch of rosters, I mean building a bunch of different rosters, taking on different players, approaching things different ways. You know, if, if you're like, well, no matter what, I'm playing Kelsey this week. Cool. Go build 15 or 20 rosters without Kelsey. You know, and so that that process is so sharp. And I think that anybody who's playing single entry, that's one of the best things you can do because you're going to compete against people, a lot of people who are just building one roster. And so you've gotten to see so much more than they've seen. And that sort of allows you to react better and just get much closer to whatever the sharpest build is on that slate. So yeah, I I strongly recommend building a lot of rosters, whether you're playing multi-entry or single entry, just to make the slate as flexible for yourself as you can make it. I think it's a super sharp way to go. All right. This is the last question that we have. Uh, It's from BPV. I've seen some data points that suggest that ownership in large field tournaments is less concentrated so far this year. 
Is it possible the field is getting smarter and more people are looking at ownership projections? And if so, how can we take advantage of that? I think it's a function primarily of what this season has given us so far. We haven't had a lot of explosively good chalk. We haven't had a lot of plays that warrant 30 plus percent ownership. We've had a lot of weeks with four or five games carrying a 50 plus point over under, but with none of those games particularly likely to go for 65 to 70 plus points, and none of those games really separating from the others, or with those teams spreading the ball around a bunch, or kind of being one dimensional as far as like maybe they keep the ball on the ground or whatever, like, you know, the Browns are in a game with a 50 plus point total, but they're going to throw the ball to nine, 10, 11 different players. Nick Chubb's going to get most of the carries, but not see pass game work. Kareem Hunt is going to get the pass game work, but not see a lot of carries. And so it's hard to pinpoint, like, if the Browns score 30 points, do you even get a tournament winning score out of that? So I think that a function of the way that teams have been using their players, the way that the slates have set up so far is more the reason why things have been spread out. There haven't been many clear smash chalk plays. So is the field looking at ownership projections more? Probably. Do they know how to process that information and put together sharp rosters? Probably not. You know, uh, Hilo talks about layers one, two, and three of game theory thinking. And I think in his course, he even went through like, five layers of the strategy thinking of the field and like where the field is at, or maybe that was in Zandemir's course. He went through like five layers, of the strategy thinking of the field and where the field's at, but it's like the field is still very far behind where we are. And so I'm not too concerned about things like, Oh, is the field looking at ownership projections? It's like when blender said the reason he gives away so much information for free on his podcast is because he figures 95% of his listeners will never get it anyway. And there is an element of that of like most of the field, still is not going to know what they're doing. Um, and so we who are focusing on this stuff, we're always going to have an edge over the field in that regard. Uh, so yeah, I'm less concerned about it. And, I, and for me, it's it's more just a function of the way that the slates have set up this season. Uh, with that, do we have anybody who wants to hop up on stage before we get out of here with any other questions? If you want to hop up, raise your hand. I will invite you in. If not, we will get out of here for this week. Uh, I appreciate you guys hanging out. If you have uh, questions for next week, feel free to get them in early before you forget about them so that I can make sure I get to them. Uh, starting next week, I should be able to be on Discord quite a bit more as well as I'll finally have all this sort of work stuff off my plate. But um, but yeah, I was excited to do tonight's podcast. Fun to kind of work through some of these current elements that are, uh, you know, it's great to talk about the big picture stuff of DFS, but some of the stuff that we can very specifically apply to the way that the field is playing right now from a roster construction standpoint and what we can be doing to gain an edge from that standpoint is really cool to be able to dive into. So fun to do that. Thanks for hanging out tonight. I will see you guys on the site throughout the week and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend.